This is Mass and Volume, a podcast exploring topics on cultural identity and social dynamics. I am your host, Scotty Crow. Thank you so much for listening. Here's today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mass and Volume, episode 21. My guest for this episode is Miss Emily May. Emily is the co-founder of uh, an organization called Hollaback, which is actually an online space and advocacy group against street harassment. And Emily has spent much of her life standing up for social justice and speaking on behalf of vulnerable communities. Um, As I got to learn more and more about her, I found that since a very early age, she has dedicated herself to this kind of work. It was a pleasure to talk to Emily and learn more about her story. We actually met through one of her latest endeavors called 100 Days, 100 Dinners, and I was fortunate enough to be invited to a dinner that was actually being covered by NBC News, so that was uh, a highlight for sure. And 100 Days, 100 Dinners is an initiative to have 100 dinner gatherings or dinner parties for the first 100 days of the current administration. And the concept was born before the actual election. It was during the toxic campaign trail. And Emily and the two other co-founders got together and decided that they wanted to present a series of meals where people could come together and either process what they had gone through and or find a way to bridge differences. And my experience with 100 Days, 100 Dinners was very special. Uh, I was in a new city, in a stranger's house, in a neighborhood I'd never been in, and I sat down with seven people I had just met, some of whom I knew had very different belief systems or ideologies or preferences than me, not because they told me, but I knew that that was what the dinner entailed. But as soon as the meal started, I felt connected to everyone because everyone was committed to the same thing, and that was trying to build a community with the rest of the table. And because I've been fortunate enough to find myself in social circles like that, I immediately felt like I was at home. And at the table that night, there were a mix of political associations and affiliations, but I walked away not really knowing who may have been Republican or Independent or Democrat or non-affiliated or non-partisan or a non-citizen for that matter. All I knew was how connected I felt to everyone. So I highly recommend checking out 100 Days, 100 Dinners. And here is my conversation with Emily May. Thank you. Hey, this is Scotty Crow with Mass and Volume, and I currently have the privilege of sitting across the table from Emily May. Emily, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing very, very well. Emily and I met a few weeks ago at 100 Days, 100 Dinners, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But the first thing I just wanted to get into is Emily is a fellow Southerner, grew up in Virginia. And Emily, I would just love to hear what that experience was like for you, specifically related to what was your what was your sense of identity growing up? And how did that influence you as you lived in Virginia or any decisions you made to move out of Virginia? Yeah, I um, I mean, my 
identity growing up was so much informed by the fact that my parents were divorced above and beyond where I was in the world. Um, my parents divorced when I was three years old. And so it's like that age when people don't um, get divorced, you know, like nobody else's parents are divorced at three in, you know, the North Carolina it was where we were all living at the time. Um, and it's also that age where you want to be just like other people. Um, and so that divorce and that separation was um, hard on me, obviously, but it was also very much hard on my mom, who never expected to be in a position where she was divorced. And um, and even though, you know, I saw my dad every other weekend, I saw my mom all the time and saw her through processing what that divorce was and what that meant. And I think that that was so foundational to my understanding of, of feminism, both in terms of what did it mean to be a single woman with a single girl child trying to make it through the world um, on a school teacher's salary? And what did it mean for me as that girl child, right, to support her in, in doing that? What did it mean to care for her? Um, my mom has a story um, that she tells where I remember when she was little she would just she would shut her door when I was little when I was about about four she would just shut the door and just cry and cry and cry and I would knock on the door and sometimes she would answer me and sometimes she wouldn't she would just be crying so loudly and one time she answered the door um, and I came in and I handed her a juice box Mm. because that's in four-year-old language the only way that you know to make something better right and i handed her a juice box and said like mommy this will make it better um wow so yeah you know i think that was was so core to my experience because it was so different um and then growing up and um learning about injustice in the world and trying to figure out how, if at all, that injustice played out within my own family um, and getting really obscured answers from both sides of the equation. Um, No, we didn't have slaves. No, we were too poor to have slaves. No, it's a myth that everyone had slaves. Only rich people had slaves. (laughs) You know, and I'm I'm a white person. (laughs) This is what's baked into this narrative. And when you say we, was that your family history? Was that your community that was my family, both okay. sides of my family. Okay. Um, and both sides of my family, I should I should also note, um, can be tracked all the way back to Jamestown. Gotcha. So, been living in, you know, the South for a long time. White, white, white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as far as the family reunion can see. Um, and, uh, um, and, yeah, very much, um, you know, not acknowledging sort of the, the history that at the very least we were surrounded by, if not we were participating in. Right. Um, and it wasn't until I was much older, several, it was probably within the past five years actually, that I found a book in my grandmother's house that documented um, all of my family members and all of the people that they owned and enslaved. Wow. Wow. I'm sure that was a yeah. heavy experience. Yeah. Um, I wanted to go back to something you said about when you were growing up and learning about injustices. Mm. What was the primary source of, of that education or that information coming to you? My mom very much identified as a feminist, and so did her sisters. Um, 
The most vivid thing I remember was being um, about seven and getting the autobiography of Susan B. Anthony, who's a very complicated historical figure. Um, although her autobiography that I read at seven was not complicated. <laughs> um, the narrative that I read at seven um, was um, a narrative of a woman who, you know, obviously thought that women should have the right to vote. Um, and, um, and everyone thought she was crazy. And this narrative was so striking to me because women having the right to vote is mostly accepted at this right. point. I right. mean, I do realize there was recently a hashtag floating around the internet called repeal the 19th, right? But for the most part, except for the corners of um, the sexist internet, it's accepted that, right. yeah, of course you should have the right to vote. You're a person. Um, and uh, and I just remember thinking how wild that was, right? That how quickly really history could change course because it had only been you know, at that point, not even a hundred years since that had changed. Um, and, um, and I think that was really instructional to me, um, as I started to think about what a world could look like without street harassment, right. what a world could look like without online harassment. And, and as you know, all those people really predictably, right. Cause I started doing the work to address street harassment back in 2005, very predictably came at me and told me this wasn't important, this wasn't a priority, women secretly liked it, it was just meant as a compliment, why didn't I understand that, right? That sort of barrage of like, you're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy for thinking this matters. Um, I was like, yeah, that's that's how history works. There's a parallel, yeah, without a doubt. That's how, yeah, of course you think I'm crazy. Right. Have you read Susan B. Anthony's like seven-year-old right. <laughs> Right, right, right. I hope I don't end up to be as complicated of a historical figure as she is. <laughs> I don't think so. But I think that that is a, I think that uh, I hear time and time again that that's such a common thread in the population at large's lack of willingness to accept change mm. is by calling the, the people who are making the change crazy or out of their mind or unreasonable. But then time and time again, like you said, history has proven that eventually that person's movement is understood and embraced, and then we move on and we move on. But um, to me, that strikes me as you're doing the work that needs to be done, right? It's because it's bringing something up in, in people. You're protecting people and then bringing something up in people who want to try to hold on really tightly to this old way. Um, I just wanted to remark on one other thing before uh, you talk about a few of the endeavors that you've had for preventing street harassment and mm -hmm. providing a safe space online. You mentioned that growing up at you know a really young, almost like pre-formative age, you had such an awareness of feminism and, and taking mm -hmm. care of, of your mom and how that was a part of you. And I think only recently I've had to, partially because of the context of what's been going on this year, but I've had to sort of dig deep in terms of where my values were established with that. Mm -hmm. And f for a little while, just because I'm, I'm outside and um, practicing like allyship and being an accomplice, but I realized that my ties for the way that I feel are things that I saw when I was very, very young. And it's not a matter of me uh, necessarily like latching on to news that I feel is right or wrong, but it's it's because of the things that I saw at a young age that I thought were injustices, but they were in neighborhoods or they were you know, with people I was related to or loved ones. And so I think your awareness of that happening at such a young age is is inspiring in a way, because I think that we don't need to look that far for how connected we are 
to, to the movements that we're involved in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I think it all, it all sort of roots back to some of the stuff that happens so young and we formulate these ideas, these stories of who we are, of who the world is. And those stories we hold and they, they guide us throughout all of this, you know? And I think um, some of those stories are useful. Some of those stories are world-changing, right? The right. idea that, like, um, in this very simple narrative that somebody could, of, of Susan B. Anthony, right, that somebody could be called crazy a million times but actually, in the end, end up changing history for millions to come after her, right? And some of it's damaging, right? The idea that, um, you know, as a woman, you'll be left alone, right? Who will take care of you? Right. Um, you right. know, there are ways in which I carry that, too, through my life um, that is not productive. Um, and so what does it mean to sort of carry, what are the narratives that we decide upon or hit upon? How do we decide that these are our narratives that right. we're going to carry for the rest of our lives? It wasn't like I read the Susan B. Anthony book and I was like, here's a narrative I'm going to carry well into my 30s, you right. know? Right. It was just like I read it and I was like, huh. And it was only later that I put it together that it was something I'd been holding on to. Right. Yeah, to me, it's that, uh, and I don't know if this is what you're saying, but to me, it's it's constantly exploring what the, what my narrative and what my story might be mm-hmm. and what is my actual voice. And I feel like I've been in that space for probably much of the last two or three years, and it's scary, right? But I think figuring out what, what applies to us and then what, what doesn't serve us mm-hmm. is possibly the most difficult thing, right? Sometimes like facing the really difficult things can be even easier than that. So I'd love to talk to you about, so we're in the Hollaback offices right we now. Are. We are. Here we are. Beautiful view of Brooklyn out your window. Thanks, thanks. So Hollaback is a initiative um, organization that fights street harassment. Mm-hmm. And there is a, uh, there's another iteration of Hollaback's efforts called Heart Mob, right? Which basically provides a virtual space to protect a number of vulnerable communities. Um, I'd love to hear, um, how I'd love to hear why you started Hollaback and maybe also what you see is the future of Hollaback and Heart Mob and how those continue to reach mm. um, other types of people as you as harassment comes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I started um, Hollaback back in the day, 2005. I was mm-hmm. 24 years old um, and uh, really just sort of pissed off at my own experiences and was having a conversation with a group of friends and the girls in the group were just telling story after story and it wasn't that right it wasn't the idea that we were all going through it it was the idea of the men in the group listening to all this and being like are you serious this seriously happens to you like three or four times a day like, why? Like, what is going on with our world, right? Um, and it was their sort of, like, indignation about it. My friend Sam was even like, you live in this entirely different New York City than I do. And I was like, you're right. I do. And, like, that's super unfair. Yeah. Um, that we started just uh, – documenting what we were going through and we had heard um, a story of a young woman named Tal Nguyen and it went from there we were inspired by what she'd done and how she'd been able to take this narrative turn the lens off of her onto the people person who was harassing her and in doing so ignite a conversation about it where everybody raised their hand and said me too and so we um 
did just that and we started a blog and we started you know documenting our experiences and telling our story and figuring it out and um that turned into a nonprofit in 2010 I stepped up as Hollaback's first executive director um still am Hollaback's first executive director um and you know and to fast forward to today I think that um it is wild from a historical perspective to have gone from a issue that everyone even a year ago six months ago people saying you know what street harassment not that important not that urgent not that big of a deal right like I get it it's hurtful but in the landscape of all these things that are wrong with our world is street harassment really something that's worth spending our time on um to a moment where now post-election everyone's like yes this absolutely is critical and I think what Trump did for people is he drew a really direct line between the way that we talk about each other in in public the way that we function as a culture what we accept culturally of each other um, and hurt and pain and harassment and violence Um, and when people were able to see that as a continuum they started to think like wow we're we're in deep trouble right Right. and as that rise in hate crimes happened post-election and the rise in reports to to haul back happened post-election you know we've really seen that that play out but it's definitely um you know been whiplash in a way for me to go from being you know gaslighted for years right and told this issue didn't matter to all of a sudden this issue mattering right people I, i was gonna ask you if that sort of the, the increase in volume and hate crimes and harassment, um, what the response and what the what the lift has been for you. But mm-hmm. um, so thank you for, for talking about that. My my question, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but as a, as a very apparently empathetic person, I saw somewhere that um, you've been called the harassment avenger. <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> um, but but it's because you've dedicated your life to trying to create a safe mm-hmm. space and, and stop harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, in the past few months, just as the as, as all of this has, has really become, it's reaching like an overall overwhelming mass, um, is there a space you go to or any things that you do for self-therapy um, to to make sure that you're still doing the work and you're being active and you're you're plugged in the way that I'm sure that you feel called to do, but also making sure that you're not burdened by the overwhelming amount of work that probably mm-hmm. feels like it has to be done now. Yeah. Um, I think the best thing that I, um, that I do is I have an awesome executive coach and I have an awesome somatics coach. Mm. And that's like, such a privilege. I have a grant actually that allows me to have that um, through um, Prime Prime Movers, which is a grant for movement leaders. Uh-huh. It gives them like professional development funding. Um, but what those moments and experiences have taught me is how to um, lead from my heart, hmm. um, which brings balance to all of this chaos. Not perfect balance. <laughs> I'm. I'd be a dead face liar if I told you I was leading from my heart in every moment of the day um, 
but uh or that if i was perfectly imbalanced or you know perfectly centered um i you know still will be off center for days at a time you know depending on what's happening but i think you'd be inhuman to not be yeah (laughs) yeah it's an uncentering moment in our history um but uh you know that practice of being able to know what it feels like to lead from your heart to lead from a place that's centered um and knowing that i can come back there um either through you know simple breathing exercises or oftentimes just taking a moment just to realize that i'm off centered and pull myself back um that is the best self-care that I've ever done because you know in in this field of social justice people talk about self-care like nonstop, and like every time I ask people what they did for self-care because I've been asking people for years like it just sounded like some other thing that I had to put on my to-do list it was like Mm. well now I have to go get a massage (laughs) you know and like also I have to to fundraise for the organization (laughs) so I can get a paycheck so I get a massage You know, or like now I've got to go like sit in the park for an hour. You know, it was like, it was just like, how do I make time for all? Like, it felt like another thing to schedule. Um, But um, being able to uh, be centered in my heart is like, it's a gift. It's not another thing to schedule. It's something to requires constant attending to. Right. But, um, but it's a gift. Is there an example you could give or an anecdote about what leading from your heart looks like? Yeah. So I've been doing this work, as I mentioned, for like 12 years now. Um, and when I came into it, I was 24. I was getting harassed all the time. And I was pissed. I was totally pissed. As well, I should have been. And I'm still pissed. You know, there's still right. a part of me that's like, what the F is that? Right. Um, so that didn't go away. Um, but what entered when I started leaving from my heart, leading from my heart, is this um, other side of the coin, right? That it's not enough. For people to not just harass that it's not enough for me to feel fully able to walk down the street as me as my fully embodied badass self wearing and doing whatever i want to do right that's not actually enough like where it becomes enough is that flip side of the coin where we start to look at how are we in relationship with each other how do we see each other how do we um understand the complexity of each other how do we um understand the ways in which our fates and our histories and our futures are all intertwined and i don't mean that in like a woo hippie woo kind of way i mean that in like a very like metaphysically there's science behind it like you feel something and there are parts of me that will feel that too whether I want it to or not right right um how do we you know how do we walk through the world knowing all that and how do we take care of each other how do we more deeply let each other see each other's pain but not be overly thrown off balance by it just sort of let it wash through right and also in letting that pain wash through see ourselves as actors and potentially being able to do something to support that person Mm. and that's where 
you know, all the work that we've been doing around bystander intervention, including HeartMob, which you brought up, which is a platform where, you know, people who are harassed online can report their harassment and a community of bystanders come together and help support that person. That same energy is where, you know, 100 days, 100 dinners comes from, right? This idea that we need to circle up, that we need to be in community, that we need to see each other in deeper ways than just what our political opinions are on our Facebook walls or even in real life, right? Um, And all of that, you know, very much is sort of driven from this story that I've been trying to work out now for 12 years, right? Right. It's like, how do we... What does it mean to end this? What does it mean to end harassment? Does it just mean that all of a sudden sexism and racism and homophobia disappear? Or does it mean something that in that absence something shows up in its place? And what is that thing in its place? And can we create moments of that to rest in as we do also the work of resistance um, to make the other crap go away? I love that. I love the way that's framed. Uh, so you mentioned 100 Days, 100 Dinners. It's a yes. great segue. Yes. So 100 Days, 100 Dinners is a dinner series for the first 100 days of the administration where groups of people get together and they can uh, model the meal after two different paths, right? And, and one is sort of a, a healing path for people who may be feeling a sense of loss or grief from the election. And then another path is more centered on bridging people who may have different beliefs or ideologies or backgrounds and trying to create understanding and community mm-hmm. within that. And you had mentioned that the concept for this came up during the campaign cycle because that was so toxic. So it wasn't necessarily a response to the current administration, um, although, well. <laughs> yes, and. Right, sure, <laughs> sure. And we met because I'd, I'd reached out about possibly hosting a dinner and you yeah. invited me um, to meet some other people and it was one of the most, uh, it was one of the best evenings I've had and I just wanted to say that, and I can't remember if I mentioned this to you in person, but my impression was the meal, the meal's eight people and there are a number of people who are probably registered Democrats and a number who are registered Republicans and f- throughout the meal, I couldn't really figure out who was who mm-hmm. and I didn't really care. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. even now that I may have a better idea, that's that's such a that's so far down the list of something that I would think of in terms of classifying or qualifying or categorizing somebody. And I think that's the real value of the dinners, mm-hmm. and and to take that work away, right? To take that away and say, okay, when I enter a group, these are people with stories that are important that are not unlike my stories. And so I'd love to hear your reflection because we are about a third of the way through Mm -hmm. the 100 days. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do you feel about how it's gone so far and what do you see over the next 60, 70 days for this project? Yeah, Um, I think that, oh, what's so interesting to me about this project, this project is interesting to me on a bunch of different levels. I mean, first of all, I run an organization that addresses harassment Mm -hmm. um, and I am somehow in collaboration with this motley crew (laughs) of other executive directors who I'm head over heels in love with, but one runs a grief organization and the other a faith organization. And I'm like only in this contemporary world that we're living in, also only in this stage of my own personal evolution, would I 
ever in a million years be collaborating with a faith organization and a grief organization. Like there's just something about us as a motley crew um, that is surprising and energizing to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But this idea came about, you know, before the election. Um, It came out um, of really that moment in which um, the whole, you know, grab them by the pee, pussygate scandal happened. Um, and, um, and, you know, on a personal level, I was like, we are effed. But on an organizational level, I was like, we haven't really been cordially invited to this disaster yet but when that comment came out i was like oh here's our invitation there it is is, right um and um and i saw you know we work with survivors of sexual assault and harassment and you know people carrying years of of trauma at the hands of um others largely men and and i saw the ways in which um having uh, someone who was a sexual predator have such a mouthpiece um, had shaped and affected the people who we were serving, right? And it felt like a collective trauma in the way, in a way that was just sort of like rubbing itself in our faces. Um, and at that time, we all thought Hillary was going to win, da, 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 right? Um, and um, I just thought, you know, everyone's going to look at this and say, let's just wait until Hillary wins and then we'll all try and forget that this happened. Um, But that's not the way that collective trauma really works. And I had seen um, and continue to see the ways in which um, people hold in their their own bodies and I hold in my own body the traumas that I've experienced. Um, And I just thought we need some kind of something so that people can process what is happening. It's so destabilizing. Um, and then the election happened, and it wasn't the result that we thought. Um, and I, you know, the only uh, before the election, right? The, the 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 only thing that I could think of that I could parallel it to was grieving, mm-hmm. which is why I reached out to you know the right. dinner party, an organization about grief. Um, and um, and but it also seemed like this critical moment where we needed to I mean in my like naive words uh, not having the right word I don't know I don't have the right words for it but I felt like we like needed a new like religion or something you know like all I could think about was like the ways in which like my grandparents generation when somebody would die there would just be casserole dishes and casserole dishes and casserole dishes like coming through the front door from people that you don't even know and I was like we need some kind of equivalent community of that of people who are not um, bound by friendship or family of people who are bound by collective responsibility to each other um, to come together in this moment and that's where um, Jen from the Faith Matters Network came into this you know conversation Um, and you know and the response to it has been incredible people similar to how I was, are skeptical that um, what can a dinner do? Hmm. Can a dinner change anything? Um, and similarly, I'm not in the business of dinner parties, right? I'm in the business of radical resistance. Right. And so I was a little skeptical until I went to one. And then I was like, oh, oh, I think I think something just <laughs> rearranged itself right. in my heart. Right. Um, I think that's what we were hoping for. And I 
was amazed that it happened. Mm -hmm. Is there, uh, is there any one story that comes to mind about, uh, one of the dinners that have happened so far that, uh, that you'd like to share? All the most powerful stories are ones at the dinners that I've been to. Understandable. <laughs> That's completely understandable. Um, uh, and I, I can I put you on the spot. So yeah, I can tell some um, a couple of things in vague enough terms that I'm not incriminating anyone. One dinner I held with friends um, that I've been friends with for ten plus years, um, and. Um, they told stories that I had never heard before. And they told them with a deep vibration in their voice. There was a story. It was so heavy and so laden with like consequences in their own lives. And yet, I'd never heard it before. Um, and similarly, I went to a dinner around Bridging Difference. Um, and there was a couple there who... Um, the uh, one of the members of the couple told a story that his partner had never heard before. Mm. And I was just wondering, right? Like, why aren't we having conversations like this more often? Um, why am I not having conversations like this more often? Right. Why are we like burning, you know, hours of the day talking about what happened on the news or... Um, what we saw on TV when instead we could be in deep relationship with each other. Right. And I think I know the answer to that. It's really hard. Right. It's hard. There's a, a gravity to speaking a story so deep inside your body that you, your voice vibrates as right. you tell it. Um, but, oh, my God, how beautifully could we reimagine our communities if we did that? Right. And I really believe that the more often that people engage one time in an environment like these dinners that, that you've started to organize, we understand that richness, mm -hmm. right? And then we almost expect or demand that conversation and discussion go that deep and make, be that meaningful. And that, so we're not discussing trivial things or opinions mm -hmm. like we talked about. Yeah, and I also realize that I ask you that question, but a, a major tenet of the of the dinner is that you know the conversation stays at the table um, and the, the one other thing I'll mention is that I think that you and the other founders have done a really good job of facilitating the meals with prompts that are incredibly open-ended mm. but very very direct and I think because of that to share we, we a dinner guest has to dig deep and I think in digging deep I remember that I I feel like one time I was processing something that I never really thought about before. Another thing was probably something I haven't shared in 15 or 16 years or mm -hmm. maybe since it happened. And, and so I think that that's the beauty because they're all universal enough to where everyone can have a response, but it's unlikely something that we've talked about in the past few days. And so mm -hmm. I think it has a, that deep resonance. So, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm very appreciative for that experience and to be here talking to you about it. Uh, I end the podcast with two very open-ended questions. So the first one is, uh, what is it to you that matters the most? Mm. Oh my God, I have um, 
this most amazing 16 month old kid Mm. and this most amazing partner and like the two of them the like combo love punch pack of (laughs) those two um is so life-giving um which i've is a weird phrase to phrase to use because technically i think we gave that kid technically life right, right. <laughs> but like but you know and i and i thought having a kid um i just thought oh it's a lot of work like i'll, I'll put my own you know personal development um as a human on hold and and focus on like this kid and making sure they like live and eat and survive and don't act like a jerk right <laughs> um and it has been really the exact opposite you know i feel like um having this kid has just accelerated my own um, exploration into how do I be a better person? How do I be more present? How do I lead from my heart? Like he like cracked it open. And then I got to be like, wait a minute, I don't want to put it back together again. I want it to be like all up out here in the universe but oh crap the universe is scary so sure. i've got to figure out a way to like manage the universe is scary and hard and awful and, and seemingly getting scarier by the day but also i want to be able to be um fully receive this gift of being fully open that this kid has brought into my life oh, i love that i love that so much and then the last question is uh, what is one thing that everybody in the world should do each day I don't know. What does everybody in the world do every day? Um, How about this? I think if everybody in the world took it second just to fully see in all of their history and all of their complexity, somebody else. It could be somebody in their life, their intimate life, or it could just be somebody on the subway. But to really fully like see and feel somebody's love and pain and energy, um, I think the world might be a little more beautiful. I agree. Beautifully said. Uh, Emily May, thank you so much. I'll include in the show notes all of the links to all of your many wonderful endeavors. But oh, thank you. On behalf of everyone, thank you for all the work you're doing. I'm sure it's Uh, Not the easiest path, but it's such a necessary, impactful path. So, thank you. Thank you. I say something loving. I can't hold it inside. The thrill of affection is only... Thank you so very much for listening to this episode of Mass and Volume. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, we are at Mass and Volume. Our website is massandvolume.me. And on the website, each audio file is paired with a companion essay. And in that essay, we also list any links or references that the guest or myself may have made in our chat today. If you're listening to us on iTunes, thank you very much. If not, you can subscribe. And if you happen to like what you hear, we would love for you to rate and or review us there. Thank you so very much. And we will see you soon. Hear you soon. You'll hear us soon. I hope you hear us soon. Okay, I'm done. Bye.